It's the fourth chapter of John's Gospel, and we'll commence our reading there at verse 1. Hear once again the inerrant, the infallible word of the living God. When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, uh, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and he must needs go through Samaria. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away unto the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it? Thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria. For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Thus far the reading of God's word. May we know its blessing richly this afternoon. The Gospels give us the history of Christ's ministry the days of his flesh on the earth. But friend, as we've said to you time and time again, the, the Gospels are interested not just to give us history, but to show us the deeds of the Christ who is presently alive. Yes, we have a historical Christ, but friend, the Gospel writers are concerned to remind us time and again that we're not reading the deeds of Christ as one might read of the works of Alexander the Great, Napoleon, or the great, the great works of the older men of the faith, Luther or Calvin. Those men are dead. This is the living Christ of whom we read. And friend, when we consider that, then you recognize that every part of this book is gold. As one preacher in the 19th century so aptly put it, here you and I are reminded that even the dust of this book is gold dust. Well, this morning we come to a text that is quite familiar to us. And the nine verses that we read, largely I would say, are read over, simply to provide us something of a context, to bring us into to the heart of this very well-known discourse between Christ and the Samaritan woman. But remembering, friend, that even the dust of this book is gold, I would suggest it would be wrong for us to simply run through these nine verses uh, as though they had little to tell us. No, friend, here you and I see the works of the living Christ, and they do hold forth for us something of great and of precious worth. This, this moment in Samaria takes place approximately eight months, eight months from the events of the end of chapter 2. We know that, of course, because at the end of chapter 2, you have the Passover. At the end of this fourth chapter, you notice that it's four months until the following Passover. Eight months have passed in the public ministry of Christ. 
And what we notice immediately is that in Jerusalem and throughout Judea, Christ has amassed something of a very large congregation. So large, of course, that it prompted the discussion between the disciples of John and those of the Pharisees, eliciting, of course, from John the answer that you have at the end of the third chapter. The name of Christ is increasing. And that is cited as the occasion for Christ's removal from Judea and into Samaria. In verse 1, we're told the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard, and therefore the sense is he left Judea. Now, what you recognize, friend, is that this is a removal by force. If you look back just to chapter 3 for a moment, verses 25 to 36, that final section of that third chapter, you have, as I've just said to you, that, that dialogue between John's disciples and John the Baptist. And you remember that, that it was uh, some kind of strange, strange coalition between the Jews and the disciples of John that prompted this dialogue. And one might ask, why? Well, friend, as you come to this first verse of the fourth chapter, you recognize why all of a sudden the Jews were willing to come so close to John. Evidently, friend, what you find there is that they're, they're hoping to, to bring John the Baptist to the point where from envy he will renounce Christ. If you remember, friend, that question that came to John the Baptist was not so much a question as it was an accusation. An accusation that Christ was somehow wronging John. Well, friend, that strategy fails utterly. And now what you find here is that Christ is harried from Jerusalem. He's persecuted. Here you have the greater David, driven by the leaders of the church into Samaria. The lion of the tribe of Judah, driven from Jerusalem. Now as you look at verse 4, what you recognize here is that there's, a lang there's language of imperative that Christ makes this journey, he must needs go through Samaria on his way to Galilee. That can be explained very simply as, as being a geographical fact. Uh, the reality was there was no real way, no, no viable passage to Judea from Galilee or vice versa, but going through Samaria. But the imperative language here is, is certainly something that we should keep before us. And if you hold in front of you the idea that that the route that he takes is the most direct route, him going by Sychar, or as we'll see here, Sakuth. And the fact that in this text you find that Christ has taken no provisions with him. What you recognize immediately, friend, is that this passage from Judea to Galilee was not a leisurely, a leisurely removal. This was truly one of violence. Christ now is moved forcibly from the city of Zion, from the temple of his God, and he is driven out. Now, friend, as you look at this text, what you'll recognize, too, is that he goes to a place that's quite well known. As it were, as he's hunted, um, driven from Judea, he goes to a place called Sychar, where Jacob's well was. Now, if you collate this text with that of Genesis 33 and Genesis 49, you'll recognize precisely where Christ is. 
Uh, he is moving directly, um, directly parallel to the Jordan River, making his way north. And as he's at this well, this very, very well-known well, he says to the Samaritan woman, give me to drink. To which the woman responds essentially with that final line of the, eighth, of the ninth verse. She wonders at this because the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. A friend, as you look at this text, what you recognize is that the gospel writer is setting before us a number of themes. In these first nine verses, you recognize that Christ has already encountered malice. He's already encountered those who would, as it were, curtail his ministry, silence him, and remove him from their midst. That's already apparent in our fourth chapter. But then also as you move forward, you recognize that he goes to a place that would largely be a hostile land. And a a land that even as we find from the lips of the Samaritan woman, would expect no dealings, favorable dealings with the Jews. And yet Christ goes. And what you see, friend, in this text is that Christ encountered so many barriers. And yet he must needs minister. He will not be silenced in Jerusalem. No, to prolong his ministry, he will move forward. And even as he's in exile, as we see throughout the remainder of this fourth chapter, our Christ is intent on still ministering to souls. Let the barriers be never so strong, never so high. Our Christ perseveres. Now, as we see those themes in just these first nine I want us to remember that this fourth chapter as a whole falls really in line with what you and I encountered at the end of chapter 2. Now, what I mean by that is if you look back at the last two verses of that second chapter, you remember that John makes, as John the Evangelist, makes a statement about Christ. Namely, as we read there, that Jesus, he did not commit himself unto them, that is the professing believers of Jerusalem, because he knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man. For, he says, he knew what was in man. You remember that the third chapter was an illustration of that fact. Nicodemus comes professing Christ in many ways, and yet, John is, and yet Jesus tells Nicodemus, he says, you must yet be born again, and notwithstanding your professions, you still do not receive our witness. This illustrious profession, Christ saw right through it. And now when we get to the fourth chapter, you find staggeringly that at the end of this text, the great proclamation of the woman of Samaria is that this Christ told me all that ever I did. Friend, these third and fourth chapters give us vignettes, accounts, historical accounts that reiterate for us the fact that Christ's ministry is a penetrating ministry. He cuts through the facades of men and he deals with the heart because he sees what no other could. And that, friend, is the point that we would drive home as we leave these two chapters before us. That here you have the incarnate Logos. Here we see his heart searching, his heart penetrating ministry. And friend, all of that is important for us because you remember Christ, 
here presented to us is the same one who is alive today, who ministers today. All of that held together, friend, the theme for this morning is simply that here we see Christ willingly surmounts opposition to save. Christ willingly surmounts opposition to save. And I want us to see this under two principal headings. I want us to see the resistance that our Savior encountered, and then I want us to see as well his readiness to save. So take, first of all, the resistance that's given to us in the text. The first is that of malice. And you see that, friends, so very clearly right throughout these second, third, and now fourth chapters. You remember that the Pharisees met Christ after the cleansing of the temple with incredulity. You remember that that there, in verse 20 of of chapter 2, as Christ very clearly indicates who he is and by what authority he does that which he does, he's met with unbelief. Then in verse 23 of that second chapter, you find that not only is he met with unbelief, but, but he's met with something that's of a different caliber. Men and women who profess to believe in his name, but like Nicodemus, yet must be born again. And then you find, as we've just reiterated from this third chapter, and now the first several verses of this fourth, you find that Christ is encountering actual persecution. Real attempts to stop his ministry, and so hot, so powerful those attempts, so as to drive him from Judea. Friend, what you see here is the one who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and yet he's hunted like a criminal by the church underage. It's a staggering picture. Friend, if you you compare that with the reception of God's prophets, it's even more staggering. Just for example, if you go back to the prophecy of Zechariah and you find there the prophet goes to his congregation by no means a willing and an eager congregation to hear, he says to them, if you think good, give me my price, and if not, forbear. And you remember the response of the people, they throw 30 pieces of silver at him. Now friend, that was... That was a dreadful undervaluing the prophetic ministry. But how does that compare to how Christ was treated? Friend, surely you see here the master is being treated worse than even the servants that he had commissioned. But I want to ask a question this morning, and that is how was this persecution incited? Or perhaps more accurately, what was it that was really the target and the impetus for this malice that drives Christ from Judea? I want you to notice that we're given something of an explanation for that. And it's a text, I suppose, that we could quickly read over. It's a parenthetical statement. It's that of verse 2. Jesus himself baptized not, but his disciples. Now, what you recognize here are a number of themes. First of all, in verse 1 we're told that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John. And then we receive that parenthetical statement, that explanatory statement. And what you recognize is that John the Evangelist is very careful to remind us that that the works that are done by Christ's ministry, ministers, in the faithful execution of their ministries, is attributed to Christ. Christ. 
They are Christ's works. Christ is making and baptizing disciples, even if it is through the instrumentality of his ministers, his disciples. What you find here is precisely what I think we ought to observe from J.C. Ryle. Ryle says this, he says, What is done by Christ's ministers at Christ's command in the administration of ordinances is regarded as done by Christ himself. And so, friend, what we're told here in this text is that the malice that, that, that you find in the Pharisees that, that drives Christ and his disciples into something of exile is not simply because of Christ's personal work, but his work through his ministers. Christ is reviled not simply because of what he does personally as a single agent, but what he does through his disciples. And it's that, friend, we're told, that that drives the Pharisees, that drives the Jews to to, to urge Christ from their shores. Well, friend, if that's the case, then I want you to recognize that today, the living Christ faces that same kind of malice. If the first century despised Christ for what Christ was doing through his ministers, Surely we can see that the same is true today. Surely we can see, even though Christ is now ascended, surely we can see there's still as much hatred for him now as there was then. You see, friend, what this text reminds us is that those ordinances of Christ that are hated and are spurned by men, well, friend, in the hatred for those ordinances, you see men's hatred, malice for Christ which leads the prophet and leads gospel ministers through the centuries to ask, as Isaiah did, who hath believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Friend, when Christ's ministers are deployed by Christ in the faithful administration of their work and they're despised, it's the very self-same kind of thing that you see in our text this morning. Whenever the ordinances of Christ are rejected, spurned, other things are preferred over them. Friends, so the living Christ is treated as he was in our text this morning. But that's not the only resistance that Christ encounters. He doesn't merely encounter those who, who hold malice and toward his ministry. But I want you to notice, and principally, I want you to notice what he encounters in Samaria. There is something of meanness that Christ must must overcome. Now we're told that he goes through Samaria. And as the woman at the well reminds us, this is significant because the Jews have no real, no fraternal dealings with the Samaritans. Now, what you and I remember from, hist- from history, I'm sure, is that, of course, there was long-standing animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. And you need to recognize that that animosity existed on really two fronts. There was an ethnic component to it, and, and for that ethnic component, you and I go back to the text that we read from Second Kings. You remember that there, after the Assyrians had, had removed Israel from the land and really re-inhabited the land with all kinds of other pagan nations. The Lord sent judgment through the form of lions. 
provoking these heathens to to repair to the king of Assyria and and plead that they would send some Israelites down so that that they could learn the, the custom of the God of this land, as they termed him. Friend, that really is the basis for the Samaritans as we see them in the New Testament. It was a land that was genuinely mixed. There were genuine Israelites that were brought down. But they were certainly integrated well into this this exiled community of heathens. Now that's significant because what you recognize here is that, well, you recognize that However much some of those Israelites might have argued that they remained ethnically pure, that is, they didn't intermarry with those with whom they were living, it becomes well-nigh impossible to prove such purity. They seem very much to be a mixed multitude. God had forbidden the intermarriage of his people with those who were not believers. And it seems that the Samaritans had transgressed. But friend, that really is the most basic, the most superficial, if you like, of the causes of this animosity. Because the second component for this this long-standing hatred between the two really is a religious question. You recognize, friend, perhaps, and you see this throughout the discourse here in John's fourth chapter, that there are deep theological fissures between the Samaritans and the Jews. Just for a very brief amount of background, friend, what you're supposed to see here is that these ones were heretics. They were heretics. Uh, The old Samaritan fables would say that, that they believed that they were holding to original Jehovah worship. And they believed Jehovah worship had been corrupted when Eli, that is the judge, had removed... The, the worship of God in the tabernacle from Shiloh. What you recognize, friend, is that they are saying quite pointedly that from that time, from the period of the judges until now, the Jews had been in defection and that they alone were pure. Now what does that involve? Well, friend, that means that they discounted all prophetic ministry. They rejected all the prophets out of hand. Furthermore, again, as we see brought to prominence in this fourth chapter, the Samaritans did not believe that God had commanded all of his people to go to repair to Mount Zion for worship. And so the Samaritans, friend, you recognize, had cast out vast parts of God's word, had under a pretense of supposed fidelity to God, have have actually corrupted his worship. And so, friend, what you recognize immediately here is that here you have a religious divide between Jews and Samaritans that is of the most solemn kind. They professed to be worshippers of Jehovah together, but the Samaritans, by rejecting the word of God in its totality, had themselves fallen headlong into defection. And as a result, friend, what you find is the Jews, while they sent multitudes, the Pharisees especially, to the uttermost parts of the earth to evangelize the Gentiles. You do not read in history, either in the scriptures or elsewhere, that the Jews ever sent missionaries to Samaritans. The animosity was so great that their missionary endeavors were willing to go to the furthest reaches of the world. 
but would not deal with those who were on our doorstep. And friend, it's to that place that Christ goes. To a place eminently of a mixed multitude. To a people espousing heretical ideas. He goes there. But there's even more that you and I are to see. I want you to look at the seventh verse with me just for a moment. We're given a detail that's rather surprising. We're told here that Christ is there at the well and the woman as well about the sixth hour. That's when she comes to draw water. I'll just say to you now that that's rather strange. The sixth hour was approximating the hottest part of the day. And we're told, and John is very careful as a spirit-inspired historian to tell us that he comes precisely at that hour. It's a bit striking because historically this is not how it ought to have been. Uh, The historians and the anthropologists remind us that in those countries where wells and traveling to wells were so prominent that that it was something that was done after the heat of the day, toward the evening. And in fact, you and I see that in the book of Genesis, Genesis 24. You remember whenever Aliasar of Damascus, the headmaster of, of Abraham's house, goes, goes to his family to seek Isaac's wife. He says very clearly that it's only at the evening the, when the women come to draw water from the well. But this woman comes in the noon. She comes near high day. I also want you to notice there that as Genesis 24, and again the anthropologists and historians remind us, Friend, to go to the well was not only a very practical, but it was a social event. The women, says Genesis 24, would go together to draw. And you see this even today. Uh, You'll see this in countries where, again, women will go, they'll leave the work of the home, and they'll go together for time of fellowship as they draw a well for the evening, as they draw from the well for the evening and the subsequent day. But this woman goes alone, and she goes when no other woman would be found. What you see here, friend, is that this woman is very much not integrated in Samaritan society. Friend, those details, I've I've said this often to you, those details, such as the sixth hour and that she's alone, should should not be looked over. There is no extraneous detail in the word of God. And those details explain for us why the disciples marvel when they see Christ at midday speaking to a woman who is obviously, obviously disjointed from the people among whom she lives. They marvel, you remember there at verse 27, that he talked with the woman. There's no indication that they knew of her reputation, but that they see her so. And that's enough to lead them to marvel that he would speak with her. Now putting all of these things together, friend, what do you find? You find that in these first nine verses that Christ was willing to go where no rabbi went. He was willing to go to the Samaritans. And as this fourth chapter shows us, he was eager to go, not only because it was a practical, it was a practical good to move through Samaria to Judea or to Galilee. What you recognize, friend, here is that he's intent even to minister. And this whole fourth chapter demonstrates that fact. And not only is he intent to evangelize the Samaritans, 
But friend, what you recognize here is that he is pleased even to approach the outcast. He's even pleased to deal with the one who's been cast out as it were an outcast among outcasts. Somebody who was rejected even by those whom the Jews themselves had rejected. He's willing to spend time with her. And friend, what this reminds us here is that Christ even overcomes the meanness of sinners. Their lowliness to approach them. And what John's Gospel so elegantly shows us is that though he had, though every detail in this text underscores the lowliness of this place and of this woman particularly, yet we see Christ overcoming all. Just briefly, friend, I want to remind you that this is also why Christ is despised today and why he was despised then. Christ is still despised because he's willing to cross social barriers, willing to go to the lowest of the low and to speak to them about the living water that only he can provide. If you don't think that that's the case, I'd just remind you of what Machiavelli said before. He said that that there is something inherently, inherently weakening about Christianity. He said that the religion of the Greeks and of the Romans, they made men masculine, brave, powerful. Whereas Christianity made them effeminate, weak, and introspective. No, friend, it's still the case, as it was in Christ's day, so in ours. The fact that here you see Christ so tenderly dealing even with outcasts. He's therefore despised. But I want us to go a step further. Friend, because all of these themes, while very important, are really to underscore for us how they show us Christ. And that brings us to our second and our final main heading this morning. We see the readiness of Christ to overcome all. You'll notice that it is Christ who speaks first. He says, simply give me to drink. Friend, that's a simple request. And it's a very natural request, given what we've encountered thus far. But if you look through the duration of this fourth chapter, you recognize that Christ intended far more. Uh, To put it very bluntly with you, friend, if Christ wanted to cut off the conversation at any point, he could have. And it would have even been expected for him to do so. But no, he, he is the one who initiates, and evidently with an intention far beyond slaking thirst. Now, I want you to notice, friend, that as John presents this moment to us, he does so in powerful terms. I want you to notice that, that first of all, he reminds us that the context for this conversation is one in which Christ is very literally harried from Jerusalem and Judea through the malice of his enemies. He is forced, as it were, to run through Samaria. And he is brought to a place of real lowliness. He's brought to a place such as Samaria, despised by his own countrymen. 
And then, friend, when you come to the sixth verse, not only does Christ encounter that malice and the meanness of the Samaritans, but notice what he says. In verse 6, he says, Jesus, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well. What John tells us there is the word thus. The word thus there is, he sat on the well because of his fatigue, because of his weariness. What you see in this text, friend, is then you have the incarnate Christ hunted from from Judea, brought to a place of real, real meanness, and a place in which he would not be welcome. And he's driven there even as his human frame is racked with fatigue and with thirst. And yet, He intends to speak with this woman. St. Augustine on this text put it this way. He who was asking drink was thirsting for the woman's faith. What you and I see in this text is, friend, that Christ, in spite of all of those barriers, notwithstanding all of those afflictions that he faced, was still intent to go to the lowest of the lowly, that he might offer them living water. Christ then is most willing to overcome barriers in order to save. This is the living Christ, friend. Let him never be so racked with fatigue or hunger. Let him be never so pressed by his enemies. Still, he will pursue the lowly. Still, he will pursue the outcast, that he might tender them the words of life. This is Christ being like a roe or a young heart upon the mountains of Bather. This is Christ, as it were, leaving the ninety and nine, going into the mountains and seeking that one and that lost sheep. But even more than that, friend, as you see, Christ has his heart and his mind still set on his ministry. Notwithstanding every difficulty, you see a glimpse. And I hope it's more than a glimpse for us this morning. You see a powerful picture of the heart of Christ. That not only does he overcome those mountains, not only does he, not only does he go into the wilderness, but he goes most willingly He overcomes those barriers most heartily and most readily to save. I quote these words to you often, but I feel feel it would be remiss for me not to do so on this occasion. In Luke 12, 50, Christ says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how am I straightened till it be accomplished? A friend, in that text, the baptism that Christ is referring to there is that of the cross. And note what he says. He says, how am I straightened till it be accomplished? Do you know what he's saying there? And and allow me to quote Manton on this. He says, when a man desireth a thing, he is impatient till he obtain his desire. Every minute is tedious till he doth enjoy that baptism, which was the labor of his own blood. 
earnestness of expectation straighteneth joy. And a man cannot let out his spirit upon other things till he hath what he waiteth for. Friend, as dark as Golgotha was, as much as you see Christ wrestling in Gethsemane, friend, though all of those things be so, friend, what you're also to remember here is that in a very real way, Christ desired even to overcome, even to taste the second death for the joy that was set before him, even for the salvation of sinners, Friend, he would overcome all. It shows us here a Christ who does not begrudge the journey as he overcomes the barriers to get his people. The consolation from this text as we close is that not only does Christ overcome, but that he is most willing to do so. Not only does he overcome barriers, but he does so readily and he does so heartily. And what this shows us, friend, is you see again Christ hunted and harried, as you see him wearied, fatigued, and thirsty. Still, friend, what you see there is a readiness and a deep willingness to tender the words of life to lost and dying sinners. And that shows us certainly that none delight in Christ's pains to save sinners more than he. None rejoices over their salvation, as does Christ. And so, friend, we close with the exhortation to come to him. Friend, let your previous malice, your status, your ignominy, your infamy, let it be never so great. But what these first nine verses of John foreshow us is that Christ will overcome all. He will overcome all. And what you're also to remember, friend, just as the works of Christ's disciples were attributed directly to Christ, so, friend, the offer of Christ now is to be received as his offer. As though you were the woman at the well. As though you heard his calls to take and drink from him. Friend, he calls you now. Let let it be never so lowly, your reputation. Never so weak. Never so dark and, and, and so marked a past. This Christ calls you now to come to him. And friend, he calls you not just now and not just once. But he calls you time and again to leave those broken cisterns and drink from him. Friend, this text should thrill our souls because we see that as we comply with that call, friend, we run to a Christ who is willing to overcome the mountains of Bather to meet you. Amen.